Let's get started. Today is December 31st, 2023, and we're covering lesson eight in our series on contentment. This is the second part of learning contentment. And we're going to spend a fair amount of time with 1 Timothy chapter 6 today, and I'll have all the references up on the board, uh, but we'll use that passage as a, uh, as a way to explore one of the reasons why we are often discontent and how we might, with a better understanding, learn contentment. So in, inside 1 Timothy, uh, Paul is, a, is addressing some of the things that are happening uh, with regard to what people are teaching. And he says in verses 3 through 5, Uh, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. So Paul has some pretty harsh words. He's pretty rough on these guys. He declares them to be proud and to know nothing. And they appear in their teaching to be obsessed principally over words, um, disputes and arguments that lead nowhere. Uh, They certainly don't lead to godliness, which is one of the aims he has. And he has this list you know, the envy, strife, reviling, suspicions, and such. Uh, hard things to say, and, and these people are causing quite a bit of trouble in the church. And we're not going to look at in-depth as to what they were doing, and that would be a topic for another time. But he describes these guys as having perverted both the gospel and the blessings of peace in the church because... They suppose godliness is a means of gain. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, that they think they're achieving godliness and they're using it as a means of gain. And commentator Fairbairn describes these men as setting themselves forth of men as men of profound lore, teachers of curious and far-fetched knowledge about sacred things, they drove a trade which found dupes enough to make it by no means unremunerating. That's kind of interesting that these guys, they, they really have nothing of consequence to say, but they're going to find one way or the other a way to make this worthwhile for them. They're in the church to enrich themselves. And if that were the end of the matter, we could just move on from this warning uh, But Paul does something kind of clever in the way he's describing this with Timothy. Um, So then then he writes in in verses 6 to 10, which are where we're going to spend most of our time today. He says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So we'll take this apart piece by piece and then use it to examine some some larger issues that... uh, are mentioned by Paul, godliness with contentment is great gain. It's, it's a wonderful thing to gain by an appropriate way. Um, the word for great here is uh, mega, which I really like. It's a mega gain. It's a great gain, but we're going to call it mega gains because that sounds far more awesome than great gains. So Paul is telling us, Godliness and contentment together are mega gains. And so do you see how Paul is sort of turning this, uh, this positive injunction against the, what was happening before? These other guys are, 
are having a pretense of being gospel ministers and teachers, and they think somehow they can enrich themselves by the church. And he said, instead, I want you to go after great gains, godliness with contentment. So there's great treasure and great profit to be had in being a Christian. There really is. I mean, Paul is positively stating that there is something of tremendous value that we should go and acquire in our present life. It's great gain. It's the mega gains that we're after. And we should pursue this gain with great vigor. But the profit comes not from these tales of lore and fiction, but from godliness and contentment coming together. So Fairbairn again notes that it is the mark of a base disposition to cultivate godliness for the sake merely of temporal gain it may yield. But there is at the same time a real and most important temporal gain connected with it, for it is plainly of gain in this sense alone that the apostle here speaks. Only it must be godliness of the right stamp. Hence godliness with contentment, that is godliness cultivated for its own sake, not as a stepping stone to wealth or other worldly consideration. So there is a great gain in the life we have here that we should be pursuing. And that gain comes from the possession of godliness in a state of contentment. So let's move on here uh, because it's the rest of the verse, the rest of this passage that I want to spend time on today. We brought nothing into the world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. This is kind of weird. Paul tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. And then he tells us something that should be, I think, reasonably obvious, that you brought nothing in this world and you can take nothing out. I mean, why would he, why would he tell you that? Why would he insist that this be an important point in understanding how you're to acquire gain by the mixture of godliness and contentment? And you'd think it would be obvious to everyone. Well, it wasn't obvious to this guy. It wasn't obvious to everyone around him, right? Uh, he thought he could take it with him. Um, the pharaohs weren't packed. Their tombs weren't packed with just snacks, right? <laughs> they needed provisions enough to carry them into the life to come. And, well, how'd that work out for them, right? I mean, that, that doesn't mean anything. Turned out to be useless. But he, he also emphasizes we come into the world with nothing. We start with nothing. And then we, we leave with nothing. We have nothing on both ends. We have no feedstock to start cultivating when we arrive. We don't have something that we can turn into something more, something additional. You come in empty and you leave empty. So why is that important in thinking about contentment and godliness? Why does Paul interject this phrase into the middle of things? Well, we have, uh, I, I think he's expressing an idea that's consistent in Scripture. Uh, in Psalm, we've got a couple of verses here. Um, Psalm 49, 16 through 20. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lives, he blesses himself. For men will praise you when you do well for yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. A man who is in honor yet does not understand is like the beast that perish. So we're going back to this idea that you can act like a beast. It's an important piece we're going to pick up on a little later. But even in this psalm, says, do you leave with nothing? Whatever glory you think you're achieving in this life, whatever, whatever your circumstance, whatever light it emits, it's turned off when you die and you leave with nothing. And Ecclesiastes tells us something similar. As he came from his mother's womb, naked he shall return to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor which he may carry away in his hand. You, you not only leave empty, you leave with nothing in your hands, it's the whole of your life's work is gone. It's not your stuff, and it's not your glory, and it's not 
everything that you've acquired that goes with you. And even in Job, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. Imagine all of these things happening to Job and this is his remark. I entered the world with nothing and I'm going to leave with nothing. Naked I came in, naked I leave. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I think it's, it's interesting in this passage in Job, the phrase the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, I think is pretty well known. I think it's a recognizable phrase uh, from the life of Job. We realize this was his response when presented with all this affliction. That was the second half of his response. The first half of his response is, naked I came into the world, naked I leave. So why was Job thinking about the condition upon which he entered the world and the condition upon which he'll leave the world when he experienced a great trial? And yet that's the first thing that comes out of his mouth here. It's not the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. That's true. But that's not the only thing he's thinking about when this happens. So there's something important that Paul is making. He's being consistent with this teaching across the Old Testament that we see that the men, uh, righteous men, have all agreed that we arrive with nothing and we leave with nothing. So... I want to emphasize that scripture is consistent that we are naked on arrival and naked on departure. It's just, it's clear, I think. Let me offer a few ideas on why this is important, especially as it relates to uh, acquiring gain and acquiring contentment. So this is how it relates back to contentment. The first idea is that this world is not our permanent home. We arrive here, and we will leave here, but this is not our permanent home, the state we find ourselves in. This isn't all there is. We are here, the Bible describes us as sojourners, as pilgrims. That's a helpful metaphor to have in mind as you think about contentment and you think about things. If I'm only on a journey, what do I need? Well, the goal is to get to the destination, right? To arrive there in the right condition. The goal isn't to laden yourself with such things as to hinder you from arriving at the place you need to go. So part of, I think, what Paul is getting at here is this is not our permanent home in the place we find ourselves right now. It's not as if we work a little harder that when God remakes earth, the new heavens and the new earth, they're somehow going to be all the things that we built that we can come back and collect, right? It's not as if, I'm sure glad that pickaxe, I saved it in the back corner of my garage so that when we get a new heavens, new earth, I'm not going to have to buy another one of those. <laughs> right? That can't possibly be the value of the new heavens and the new earth is there's just a lot of stuff that we can use when we get here again, right? We don't have to bury all of our stuff in the ground so that we can remember the GPS coordinates and come back and start over with something good, right? <laughs> right? What are you going to do with all those old DVDs you got buried in the backyard? Right? <laughs> is it actually going to do you any good? We're sojourners. Now, I realize there's a new heavens and a new earth, but I don't have any idea what that looks like. I doubt you have any idea what that looks like. But it's not going to be made better because of the things we've acquired and we're able to sequester. Paul's making another comment here that great gain is perfectly achievable. Mega gains are achievable if done the right way. Don't be like those guys who are teaching endless lore and fables and trying to make up stuff and sensationalize Christianity. He's saying, go after godliness, go after contentment, and you will have great gain on your journey here. So he's putting forth a very positive picture that there are ways to enrich yourself through godliness and contentment. I think the fourth idea is that possessing or acquiring a mega gain when you start with nothing and have nothing to contribute demonstrates the goodness of God. It demonstrates his gifts. What did you have to work with? I mean, what did you bring to the deal? He didn't bring anything. He was naked, right? You got nothing. And yet God in his goodness bestows good things on his children 
though they brought nothing to make this worthwhile. You were just naked, and you're going to leave naked. But in the meantime, God does many good things for us. So our lives are a testimony of God's goodness to us. We arrive and we leave with nothing. The glory of your wealth will not endure the grave. Why are you so fixated on building for yourself some monument that will not survive the grave? Look at old King Tut. Didn't do him any good, right? Temporal gains may in fact hinder our pilgrimage. If you have this idea that we're sojourners and we bring in nothing, we, t- we arrive with nothing and leave with nothing, there's a very real danger that the things we could acquire might in fact hinder our journey. Jesus warns of this explicitly. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Well, where would he have gained the world? Sometime after the arrival, sometime before the departure, that the great gain you went after ended up derailing you on your journey. So there's more than a little danger involved in the acquiring of great gain that's not godliness with contentment. We've got to be careful about these things. There's a real danger there. And I think the last observation I'll make about this passage and why I think it's important is that our value as God's creatures, as made in his image, rest in our rational, moral, and spiritual dimensions and not how much Bitcoin we can mine. Right? It's a stark reminder of where your value is at. Your value is God giving you a mind, God giving you moral direction and the ability to make good choices, the ability to pursue godliness, that you have a soul and you have a heart and you have affection. It's not on the things that you can acquire while you're on this journey. So what is it about you that God finds valuable? Well, it's you. It's not your junk. It's not your stuff. And it's not your ability to get stuff. It's you. You're what's valuable. So if you look at this passage in this light, you can begin to see why Paul is giving us some clear instruction on how we may go acquire the right kind of gain so that we don't get derailed and we don't become like these other people he was warning about. All right, well, we have, we have another s- section that I want to spend the better part of our time on. And in verses 8 through 10 in this chapter, uh, and having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So this next section here opens with Paul's instruction, instruction on what level of material provision is required for our ability to gain contentment. And he says it's with this food and raiment. And we need to be careful about how we think about that, uh, there are some basic provisions that God wants, but basic provisions might differ from person to person. And we've discussed this in a previous episode or lesson, so we're not going to spend a lot of time on that portion of it here. But let's look at this warning that's given in verse 9. But those who desire to be rich will f- to fall into temptation and snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. So what's the warning all about? Paul warns not against riches, but against the desire to be rich. That's where the warning comes from. He says, those who desire to be rich. So we talked at length in the last lesson on riches, and that we're all rich by any standard you wanted to develop. And I think we could, we could argue that, and I'm, I'm content with that as a premise. So we're all rich. 
But the question is, do we all desire to be rich? Well, yes. I think most people do desire to be rich in some capacity. The desire doesn't manifest itself, the same person, and across persons in the same way. But people really do desire to have more of something. And the quantity that they desire would differ from one person to another person. The um, substance of that richness, that state, is going to differ. I think it can differ across cultures. I think people in one culture might have access to this and want that, and some people over here want something else. So it's not an absolute discernible measure that you, could, you can't want red clothing or blue clothing or you want silver, you want gold. Those are just tokens we use to represent all this riches. But the idea of having abundance or being plentiful or even possessing an amount great enough to meet our needs to, the, to our satisfaction. There's all kinds of ways we can think about what rich is, the state of richness. And, and we'd, get, we'd get lost if we were focused on the rich that I want is better than the rich of somebody else's because my stuff has just got virtue attached to it. I only buy organic chickens. And so... <laughs> You know, that's better than those chickens that you get over there. Or I'm only interested in acquiring good books, not other books. Right? I mean, there's an abundance of ways to be rich. That's, that's the, the wonder of our world is that there is so much available to us in so many dimensions. It doesn't take just one form. But Paul doesn't, he doesn't decry riches. He says, you're naked when you arrive and you're naked when you leave. But he says, beware of the desire to be rich. That's where your problem's at. And that's where a lot of problems in contentment arrive, is this idea of our desire. So, I'm going to read a couple of things here, and then we're going to talk about desire for just a minute, because I think it's trickier than maybe what is a, uh, clear at first glance. So the question I want to know is, what is desire? Paul says, beware the desire to be rich. Okay, well, what's desire? Do you know what desire is? Uh, if you look at uh, philosophy dictionaries or other resources and men who have thought about this, they'll say things like a strong feeling of wanting to have something or wishing for something to happen. Or they might even place the idea within uh, a sexual context. Uh, it might say, desiring is a state of mind that is commonly associated with a number of different effects. A person with a desire tends to act in certain ways, feel in certain ways, and think in certain ways. Well, that's unhelpful. I, I don't know any more about desire than I did when I read that. I, I've thought about desire. I don't know what it is. So I don't think there's anything necessarily untrue about what they're saying, but I don't think it really helps us understand, especially as it relates to what Paul's saying. And Timothy, I don't understand what the desire to be rich is. But it might be helpful if we think about some words associated with desire. So maybe we can encircle desire uh, with other words, and maybe that will help us more concretely think about what desire actually is. So here's a list that I put together. Wants. Longs. Yearns. Craves. Hankers. Pines. Thirsts. Itches, covets, aspires, needs, lusts, burns. The idea of desire covers a lot of ground. And I don't think it's just a state of mind. And I think it's a pretty complicated topic to really understand. So, what do you think or how would you define desire? Let's start there. How do you define desire? 
Don't be shy. <laughs> Sometimes I'm dealing with like unwanted desires, like I'm having lustful thoughts, like like I don't want to, I don't want, you know, that's kind of like desiring the wrong thing, and like I, my heart, I don't want to desire that, but yet I battle it a lot, so kind of. Yeah, yeah that's right. They're obviously good desires and bad desires. Something that you don't have. Um, Yeah, the wanting of it. (laughs) I'm thinking the same thing, kind of. I think Um, when you when you order your life according to getting that, when you your thoughts are after that, your heart is after whatever it is you're desiring. Artist bent toward that. It's a, a, a desire. It could be a bent of the heart. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Did you say seek in the words that you gave? Uh, I don't think so. We should have added that. Psalm yeah. twenty-seven says, "One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek." Yeah. No. It ain't riches. No. So, uh, at least not riches to this earth. Uh, so seeking after something that fits with all the words that you gave. It's what Psalm 20, it's worth it. Psalm 27. And it's, and that's true. And one of the things that the philosophers try to articulate is that the desire is something being acted upon. It's the seeking part of it. But if you want to step back for just a moment and say one thing I desire... And one thing I seek, I think we're doing, we can distinguish between those two things. Well, he says here, one thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, seeking what he's desiring. Right. So I'm wondering, what is, what is a desire? Yeah. I don't think desire has to have a negative connotation. You can desire good things for people. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. No one, no one's implying it's... Right. Yeah, that's right. I just right. Mm-hmm. Well. Yeah. Well, in fact, what Dan is just referencing is an example, yeah, yeah, of a positive thing that people desire. Yeah, desires are good, right? Can be. Yeah, to that end, add 10, 27 becomes 37. Uh, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Right. Could you speak up just a bit? A desire is something you think will make you happier. Could be, sure. A deep want to the heart. Okay. Well, I, I hope this exercise illustrates it's kind of complicated to figure out what desire is. Um, so let me ask an equally difficult question. Where do desires originate? This is, this is important in our uh, topic of contentment. What was that? Heart. Desires originate in the heart. Could be. They originate from perception. perception. Okay. Perhaps the mind. Where did desires originate? They can... Desires could originate, sure, from... Perceived lack of something, yeah. Influences, outside influences. Sure. He, he took the apple, right? She's influenced outside uh, influence. I think we should. I think we would not so much define the source of the 
desire as one thing, the three mortal things. God, you know, confuses us with certain desires of godly sword. Satan tries to put in the ungodly sword, and then of course uh, we're contributing our desires, and then there's the influences like uh, everything from multimedia marketing. Well, those are all those are all good suggestions for the ways in which our desires are influenced, but I don't think they answer the question of where they originate. And that that's actually a really important idea to understand the origin of our desires. So, I mean, I guess could you say our desires come? Be careful, but by God's design, it's sin. But sure, you know, I mean, who's going to say no to that, right? I'm just not sure it actually, I'm just not sure it says much. But you could, but I think it's a fair enough point to say, why do I desire a cinnamon roll when I walk past a bakery? Right? I wasn't even thinking of cinnamon rolls, right? And now I desire one. Well, you know, the point I'm making is I don't know where desires come from. I don't have any idea. <laughs> I don't even know that anybody knows where they get. I mean, if, if, if a person wants to say they come from within, I'm happy with that. But if a person needs more precision about where they come from, I don't know what the answer is. Do they come from the mind? Do they come from the nostrils? Do they come from, I mean, when a person desires water and they're thirsty? How do you define that? You know, when they haven't had something to drink. There's lots of ways you can think about desires. And I don't think it's altogether clear that exactly where the locus is for this point on, on where, they, where they arise. But they come from within some capacity. I don't know if the word, I guess in the, in one, I don't know which translation translates 1 Peter 2.11 as desire. Uh, New King James has it as lust. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts or maybe desires with war against the soul. Mm-hmm. So somewhere down in the soul level. That's it. From within. Uh, yeah. yeah. I just don't, one thing I've always struggled with, or questions, which I thought you were going to be able to answer that for me, Okay. <laughs> I thought we were getting to like finally unlock this for me at the end. But I do get like, I don't know. But I do get you to keep coming back. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I don't feel like and I I I, I, I go through I, I don't feel like I'm responsible this sounds horrible. I don't feel like I'm responsible for like my wrong desires or my lustful desires. I mean all I can do is be responsible to act on them or to not act on on them or to try to find a biblical solution. But in the back of my brain is like, man, I have all these lustful thoughts. I mean it's, I'm like, I almost feel like I can't take enough holy for having those thoughts because I'm not, I don't want those thoughts. I pray, beg for them to go away, whether it be lust or money or right. whatever, but they come and they come and they come. And I just, so I've always asked people, like, am I, you know, my, am I, or am I not responsible? For, I mean, I'm responsible for what I do with them, but I can't control the thoughts. I mean, I can control how you act on them, you make making sense. I can't control them coming in. I mean, I try and I pray for them, I mean, get things get better, but. I hate to tell you this because I'd really like to say come back because we're going to do that, but we're actually going to talk about that next. (laughs) The very next thing (laughs) on our list. So I'd rather induce you to come back next week with something else, but we are going to talk about that. I'll just say as a side note, there's a big debate going on right now uh, in Christian circles, side A versus side B, homosexuality and so on, around this topic. Rosaria Butterfield has got a big... There's a thing with uh, Preston Sprinkle, who's the, he's part of that institute for Christian sexuality or something. This is a big cultural thing about whether the desires themselves are evil or are sinful, or if only the acting on the desire is sinful. This is a a hotly debated topic, deeply right now, by the way, just in that context. Because I have a strong desire to be unnecessarily... uh, Belligerent. <laughs> there is no debate. That debate has been settled. Uh, and so I don't think it's an open question at all. Uh, we have a word for this called concupiscence. We have the 
scholars have thought about these things for years, and it's a good word. It should be uh, the word of the year, really. We should, it needs to be thought, um, needs to be thought of. We have desires, uh, and one of the points that I wanted to, uh, one of the points I wanted to make about this idea, the origin or what the definition of a desire is, which is difficult, and the origin of a desire, which is difficult to pinpoint with the kind of precision that we would, we would like to have. Um, Sure. Uh, what we love may may be one of the factors in generating desire. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. I, I hope these things are helpful. Uh, I, you know, I'm still, I feel adrift, but this is where we're at. I, I think it's a hard topic to understand. Uh, and for our class, we don't need to know more than this. That's the beautiful part of this, is we know enough. Uh, so... When we think about the word of concupiscence and we think about desires and we think about the origin and the scope and the definition of desire, if we can settle on the idea that these desires and whatever those things might be all originate from within us, then I think we've located it close enough for government work, right? We're, we don't have, we don't need more precision that somehow it's in this part of the mind or in that part of the heart. It's from within. And so the question that, um, that we need to think about when we contemplate the idea of these desires originating from within us, however we might want to articulate our desires or contemplate our desires, our desires are not pure ever you have no pure desires now how do we know that well because we've got this nice word called concupiscence which help us contain the definition of these ideas but whatever faculty or faculties within us produce desire or create desire it does so under the abiding judgment of original sin. When Adam sinned, when he fell, we inherited a fallen nature. Nothing is exempt in our life from that fallen nature, not even our desires. Our desires fall within that realm. That does not mean, however, that because we have a fallen nature that will produce desires, that our desires are as bad as they can possibly be. But it does mean they're not pure. There's an admixture. We have the remnant of our fallenness in us that affects many aspects of our life, not just limited to desires. It's not as if our mind, for instance, is altogether clear from the effects of the fall. It's not our will is somehow unaffected by the fall. Our emotions are all affected by the fall. Our desires are all affected by the fall. They don't originate in a vacuum. We don't have angels coming down throwing desires at us and saying, this is the desire that you have so you can guarantee it's pure. All of our internal selves are under this judgment of a fallenness that exists in the world around us. That means that our desires are sinful in whole or in part. There's, there's, no, there's no absolute purity. This isn't ivory soap. Does ivory soap still market itself as 99, 44, 100 or whatever it was, something like that? You know, those aren't your desires. <laughs> That's not possible for you. Um, Desires can certainly be sinful. The desire to kill your neighbor unrighteously is it just is is a loathsome desire. But you could say the desire to get married is a good desire. My 
Might be you're just looking for a way to express your selfishness. You can't tell me there isn't some element to that, right? I desire to be rich, but I also desire to get rich quickly, right? There's, desires are never unmingled from the effects of the fall. And it's the effects of the fall and the judgment we have on us that means that our desires are often sinful. The desire itself is often sinful. Even if the thing desired is not sinful, the reason why the thing desired can be sinful. So there's a lot of complexity and nuance to this. So a person might say, um, I desire to steal, but I've never stolen. So are they without sin? No. It means they have one sin and not two. The desire to steal is wrong. Jesus never desired to steal. Jesus never desired to lust or to lie. He loved the truth. Right? So the fact that you haven't stolen anything only means you haven't acted on your desires and made your situation worse. But that and, person hasn't... <clears throat> piggyback on that, that person hasn't created that desire to, uh, to steal. It's been created in, within them, right? Well, you're using a passive language there. The person hasn't created. Uh, one of the points I was trying to make is understanding how our desires originate is complicated, but they, we own our desires. Yeah. Even if we can't consciously articulate how we went through the steps of acquiring that desire, we own them. They are our desires. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm just saying, But unfortunately, the bad news is we are liable to the effects of the fall. That fall in nature is given to us. Which could be sparking some of the desires. Like it says, not really. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. We, we, we cannot exist in a world where our internal selves, the soul, mind, will, emotions, all these things, are unaffected by the fall. They're being redeemed. They're being transformed. True enough. But they are not unaffected. And we don't have time to go through the, uh, the list, but if you were looking for some passages that help us understand, you see Romans 7, 7 and 8. Uh, Paul says, Sin produced in me all manner of evil desire. There it was. Paul said, I was happy until I found this. And then what happened? Evil desire comes out of it. Galatians 5, 17. So that you do not do the things that you wish. Wow. Colossians 3, 5. What is produced in us? Evil desire. Covetousness, which is idolatry. And then 1 Thessalonians 4, 4 through 5. We shouldn't act in passion of lust like the Gentiles do, who know not God. And you can see 1 John 2.16, for it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. In James 1, 14 and 15, when each one is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Desires are strange and strange and powerful, powerful things in our lives. So, uh, how do we think about this? Disordered desires frequently contribute to a state of discontentment. We leave aside the ability to be content because we have disordered desires. And we might, for instance, created three scenarios here for us to think about. We desire, we perceive that our desire is good, and yet God does not grant it. And that's, a, that's frustrating. Uh, and your desire may well have an abundance of virtue in it, but that doesn't mean your desire was pure. And it doesn't, uh, don't allow yourself to believe that the purity of your desire is what's being denied. You can't censure God because the, the, however pure you've described your desire, that he is somehow against you by not granting it. And that's an easy trap to fall into. It's an easy thing to think, this is, what, this is a good thing that I want, and you're not giving it to me. The purity of my desire is that question. We might perceive our desire is good and God doesn't grant it, uh, but maybe God doesn't grant it because it's not good for us to have right now. 
And we think the existence of the desire should produce the thing desired because obviously the desire is good. And maybe there is virtue in our desire, but God's not giving it. For whatever reason, God's not doing it. It's a frustrating, but it, it affirms God's goodness to us, not denying it by the fact that he doesn't give us what we desire because he's giving us what is good for us. Even though the desire itself might be good, God is saying, no, not now, not at this time. What I'm doing is good for you. Well, we live in a fallen world and our understanding of what's right and the timeliness of it is affected by these things. But you can't be frustrated at God because he's not doing what you think is right, even if your desires have a strong element of virtue in them. Or we might, for instance, have been, we've deceived ourselves into thinking that our desires are better for us than they are, and we're just upset they haven't been met. There are limits to your own self-knowledge. Don't overestimate the virtue of what you think is good for you, or what you think is valuable in what you desire. You're the easiest person in the world to trick. And everybody puts the best spin on their desires. And then when they're not met, we want to accuse God of those things. And so we allow ourselves to exist in a state of discontent. Why? Because I've contemplated all things and God is not being good to me. After all, just look at my desire. You know, it's not a way to, it's not a way to live. Uh, we're about out of time. Um, But I want to move on to cover one last idea about mega gains and the idea of contentment and the idea of desire. It may seem that based on what we've been describing, these sinful tendencies that exist within us, that somehow um, the path to contentment lies with deprivation and indigence. That somehow if we can just abate our desires into a state of righteousness will be okay. And Paul's not saying that. You can't fight something with nothing. You acquire contentment with godliness, with patience and understanding. You need to be filled with something, and that something is Christ. Um, we, won't, we won't spend time... Uh, looking at, at this passage, I want to move on to one other thing, but um, Asaph had a clash of desires when he was envious of his neighbor in Psalm 73. He says, my heart was grieved. I was vexed in my mind. I was foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast. We've had these words. So we've talked about meditation. Here's Asaph saying, my meditation was very disrupted. Um, and he con confirms God's goodness to him. You'll guide me in your counsel. You'll receive me in the glory. Who have I in him to do? What on earth is there that I desire besides you? God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He's positively putting forth a picture that God is being good to him. And he will be good to him. Especially when his journey ends. The contrast here is that even though the wicked think, uh, even though the wicked live and they even seem to die in peace, I've been able to see their end, and I realize I will die with nothing, naked, at the end of the day. But God is the strength of my heart, and he will be my portion forever. I have something. I don't have nothing. I have great gains. Um, so, one, sorry for the rush in here, but I, um, we'll take a look at two more, two more sets of verses here. In verses 11 and 12 in this chapter of Timothy, Paul says, You, O man of God, flee these things. Flee. So get away from these, this teaching. Get away from this conduct that tries to seek gain without godliness. And he says, Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight. Lay hold of eternal life to which also you were called and confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He's giving him something very positive to do. Your time on earth is very limited. Spend it wisely. 
Go get mega gains. Go get mega gains. Now, I want to ask you, do you do you think that righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness are easy things to get? Man, that's tough. And yet, Paul says, here's where all your mega gains are going to come from. This is no small thing to go acquire. Don't think, don't think getting my first million, getting your first million is a whole lot easier than getting these things. Right? You're only here for a short time. And yet, at the end of this passage, you got to have riches without regards. Right? <laughs> so he says in verse 17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. Paul is not opposed to riches. We live in an age of unimaginable abundance. Riches are not what are going to keep us from heaven. Otherwise, none of us would get there. Right? If we're all rich, how would any of us get to heaven? But Paul is saying, lay hold of something even better than riches. Get this godliness here and enjoy your riches. Be generous. Be kind. Be humble. Don't be haughty. You didn't do this. This is evidence of God's goodness and his gifts to mankind because you came into the world with nothing and you're leaving with nothing. So if you've got something... It's the gift of God. And that's why you can afford to be content and go after mega gains and live a life without regrets. Right? Yeah. No regrets. <laughs> Comments or questions? We went long today and haphazardly skipped some material, but I'm happy to give you guys some closing thoughts. Any other closing thoughts?